So welcome to AM Live. I don't have much to say off the top except just to express uh, deep sadness about the level of suffering inside Ukraine right now, civilians being killed by Russia, over a million refugees. I think the U.S. policy response of basically sending in more weapons is a death sentence for more Ukrainians. No matter how you feel about the conflict, I just think it's a fact that Russia has overwhelming military advantage. So choosing to send in more weapons to Ukraine just strategically doesn't seem to make, make any sense. And the only likely consequence is, is just to sentence more Ukrainians to death. So that's my initial take, and uh, I'll have more to say, but why don't we take callers? Because I, uh, I want to get to everybody who calls tonight, because I haven't always been able to do that in previous calls. So I'm going to take the first caller, and that's Nicholas. And when you come in, everybody, when you're in the queue, remember to unmute yourself by hitting the microphone icon in the bottom right. Aaron, hi. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, I uh, was not expecting to be first up, so I expect I, I apologize that I'm not fully formulated uh, here yet. But I just wanted to kind of go over a couple of things from the last 24 hours circulating, and I will get to a point uh, as, as as quickly as promptly as I can. Um, I've kind of come at this as a scholar of international relations. That's my academic profession. I'm a professor of international relations. And uh, I don't normally find myself agreeing with people like John Mearsheimer about very much. Um, I am probably a Marxist at the end of the day, right? But, uh, you know, reading uh, back over some international relations papers by people like Joshua Iskovitz Schriffson, or Schriffenson, um, and Mearsheimer, like it, it does appear that there is at least some utility in sort of going back over classic realist IR texts and maybe um, thinking through as imperfect as those conceptual ideas are and what guides realism is, I think, ultimately a cynical uh, intuition about how the world works. But I think they're right about how power works. And so I just kind of wanted to see if you've been following any of this stuff uh, circulating around Mearsheimer lately. Um, you know, it turns out um, that uh, some students at the University of Chicago are um, mobilizing to get him suspended from Chicago, or so it seems, at least as a kind of a Putinist. Yes. Um, it just occasions this, I think, conversation that we all need to have at this stage. I'd be interested to see what other callers have to say as well. Uh, and here's my question. You know, uh, to what extent is are, are we entering into a red scare moment, um, a McCarthyist moment? Uh, I mean, uh, I think you've been the target of this in the past, but it seems it's kicking up a gear. Would you care to comment? Yeah, I'm not worried about Mearsheimer personally. First of all, that petition was only a few signatories, and I just don't think anyone's in the position to threaten someone of Mearsheimer's stature. He's, you know, very world-renowned, has published, you know, very influential books and papers. I don't think he's in, he's, he's in jeopardy, but overall, yes, I do think we're in a red scare moment. I mean, look what's happened to RT, how easily it's been censored everywhere, uh, how easily, just how people even who work for RT on Twitter, all of a sudden had their personal accounts labeled Russian state affiliated media. And this week, RT in America was forced to shut down because of the sanctions and the censorship, you know, being taken off of the air by major ca cable companies. And so I absolutely think we're in a red scare moment. And 
you know, people, of course, the impact is going to be worse on, on Russians, uh, Russians here and Russians inside Russia. I, I saw today um, on, on Twitter a Twitch streamer say that their only source of income now has been has been killed because they were on Twitch and now the, the payments can't be processed. And even I think even their eligibility to, to broadcast on Twitch has been has been annulled. So, yes, this is going to breed Russophobia and it's going to entrench even deeper this view that anything that can be ascribed to Russia is off limits and has to be canceled. So it's a it's a, something I'm definitely very worried about. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you, Nicholas. OK, Matthew. Hey, Aaron. Uh, thank you for taking the, the call from me. Um, I kind of find my, can you hear me, by the way? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I kind of find myself in the middle of this because I hear what you're saying about it, it is unconscionable that the media covers this without knowing that the war has been going on for eight years. Fully agree with you there. And that there have been many thousands of civilian deaths on, if you will, the Russian side in, in Donbass. But on the other hand, I don't – so I agree with you there, and I'm also concerned about the very propagandized environment in the West. But I'm also, I, I have to say, at the same time, I find myself troubled by people, I guess, in the anti-imperialism, anti-war camp for what I regard as kind of soft-peddling criticism of Putin and Putin's, uh, I think, pretty plainly imperialistic aims here. I, I'm not saying there aren't other aims, like the – Killing of civilians at Donbass for several years is an aim. NATO is an aim. But, I mean, he's stated in plain language, and this is not <laughs> uncommon by any means among Russian nationalists. I mean, they, they wouldn't use the word nationalist because it has a different connotation there. But in, in the sense we'd use it, nationalists, um, of thinking Ukraine is, should be part of the Russian sphere. And, I mean, he's in print and even in the when the speech is declaring the, the invasion, he, he <laughs> articulates this view that they're one people. So uh, do you think it's possible that because of biases against, understandable biases against U.S. sources, focus on the propagandistic environment, the lies of the press, not mentioning the war has been eight years, that you and others in your sphere, in the ideological sphere, are, are, are failing to adequately condemn and recognize the imperialistic quality of, of Putin's actions? Well, look, as for myself, and that's who I can only speak for, I've called his invasion illegal and murderous and catastrophic. I don't use the word imperialist because it's not as if his motives are not known. And it's not as if he hasn't been warning about them for a long time. He is a chauvinist, that's for sure. He's definitely a Russian chauvinist. And it's true, in that speech, he did use a lot of chauvinist rhetoric. But the fact is, for a long time, he's been warning about NATO expansion and also warning about a failure for the U.S. to use its leverage over Ukraine to implement the Minsk Accords and put an end to the fighting there. Because, again, keep in mind that given that we acknowledge that this war didn't start last week, or at least um, the certainly Putin's invasion was a drastic escalation, but there has been a right. war in Ukraine for eight right, years. Right. Fortunately, those people have died. You know, as you most, know. most of the public doesn't know that. So I, no, I'm exa- exactly, that exactly. But, yes. that is not known. Yes, but, but yes. And so my point is that is though known in Russia and yeah. the images of Russian speakers, ethnic Russians inside Ukraine being killed by us backed forces has put a lot of pressure on Putin. And in fact, he's been pressured to intervene a lot earlier than he did. 
So I just, that's why I don't use the term imperialistic. Now he might be imperialistic for all I know, but the prospect of him trying to conquer all of Ukraine, including Western Ukraine, which is very anti-Russia. I, um, I mean, I guess we'll see. Uh, I haven't used that term for him yet, but if he does conquer all of Western well, Ukraine and tries to, to sure. and tries to, and tries to impose a like a, it tries to install a puppet government, then yes, that, that would be imperialistic. But as of now, in making this about NATO and the Donbass region, that's why it strikes me as no matter how you feel about his decision, and again, I think it was illegal and murderous. There is a defensive aspect to it, in my view. Uh, I mean. I, I think, look, I, I think that rhetoric is, I'm not saying there's zero truth to what you're saying, but I think the rhetoric is misplaced at this moment with a million refugees. I, again, I'm not I'm not saying that's literally absurd when you're talking about civilians in Donbass being killed, but we have a million refugees. He's yeah. escalated this dramatically. This isn't the best way to help those civilians. I just think it's... Uh, you, you're missing the moment, morally speaking, by I, some of these points need to be emphasized. The fact that this has been going on for eight years obviously should be. But I think when you when you when you use the word defensive, you know, as a, as a journalist, I just think that rhetorical gloss isn't appropriate. Well, um, the, the yeah. reason I use the reason I, I use the term I know you're not condoning the invasion. Yeah, yeah, no, reason you are. I'm just yeah. saying is it's because I'm not because I it's it's. Because uh, to me, it's not at least strictly imperialistic. There might be an imperial. Uh, for all, I mean, I, I don't know what's in his mind, and there might be an imperialistic quality. But to me, it's not. Look, if he wanted to take over Ukraine uh, or or the Donbas, he could have recognized the Donbas republics when they voted to join Russia eight years ago. But he didn't. You know, he um, they Russia did try to get Minsk implemented. I do think that. I do think the main obstacle to, to Minsk implementation. Has been the uh, has been the Ukrainian government with U.S. support. Now, I also understand why Ukraine hasn't implemented Minsk because when Zelensky was elected on the peace platform in 2019 with a huge mandate, basically Ukraine's far right forces threatened to kill him. There's a prominent uh, neo-Nazi leader who literally said that you know Zelensky was willing to lose his job if he implemented Minsk, but he wouldn't lose his job; he'd lose his life. And there have been these consistent far-right rallies, including violent rallies, to basically try to intimidate Zelensky into, into, implementing, into not implementing Minsk. So I don't blame him for not doing it, but I do blame the U.S. for not using its leverage, because if the U.S. really wanted to see peace in the Donbass, it could have used its influence to, to basically help Zelensky implement the peace platform that he was elected on. And so that's why I just have a hard time saying that Putin enacting here is, is being an imperialist, because there were offers on the table from Russia that could resolve this. And those offers to me are reasonable. Keeping Ukraine neutral, which makes sense to me in a very divided country. Let's recall that Ukraine is split between some very distinct identities. There are people who really identify with the West. They hate Russia. And that's now probably the majority. But there's also a, a, a large amount of people who identify with Russia and don't want to be in NATO. So the answer in such a divided country is, is neutrality. And that was Russia's demand. It didn't demand that Ukraine enter Russia's orbit. I think they've abandoned that a while ago. And also for the, also for the implementation of Minsk. Those are, are reasonable. And I think Putin took a very reckless action to, in the face of obstruction. But that's why I just have a hard time calling it imperialist.
Okay. I, and one other question I have, which is actually a legitimate question. The other questions, I have an opinion. This other one, I actually just don't know that much. Um, <clears throat> so you and others have claimed Maidan is a coup. Um, uh, many others have contend this is scurrilous and Putinist propaganda. I like literally, don't, I know the United States was involved, but was was the overthrow of the uh, Yankovich, or I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, was the Yankovic. overthrow of this of this government was this backed by Ukrainian popular opinion? How, how did it actually happen? Right? What was the process by which the government okay. was over? Was there like a democratic procedure? Was it just yeah. violence? Yeah. Okay. Like this, I'm just not clear you. on. So I just wrote an entire article about this, which I'll link to in the show notes of this episode. You can read it. And I, I bet, what I say is that certainly when you talk about the Maidan uh, revolution, as it's known here, in its initial weeks, absolutely, that was a mass movement for democracy and against corruption. Yanukovych was very, very, very corrupt. But the problem is, as happens often, especially if the U.S. is involved, it got co-opted by, the, by Ukraine's uh, far-right forces. And the leadership of the Maidan, the people, the hardcore leadership in the encampments, and the people who took over buildings around the country, were from the far-right. Um, and I write about that extensively in my article. As for public opinion at the time, in my article, I quote two political scientists in the Washington Post from February 2014 when the coup happened. And they point out that basically... Ukrainian public opinion was split down the middle. And some polls even showed majority disapproval for the Maidan uh, protest. And they also showed that even though he was deeply corrupt and the target of these mass protests, that Yanukovych was still the most popular political figure in, in the country. So I would never claim that the Maidan coup didn't have popular support. It did. But what I will say is that it to it did not have the support of the whole country and in fact i think it had the opposition of the majority of the country so it's just false when people try to say that i'm denying ukrainian agency and calling it a coup i mean because it was a coup it 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 was violent and yanukovych fled under the threat of violence um okay so he fled he fled under the threat of that there wasn't like a some kind of um, well there was a compromise there was a compromise here's what happened and i write about this and i Again, I, I I recommend you read it if you if you want uh, to to hear more about it. But to, to give a short summary, there was a compromise brokered by European countries. Uh, Russia also approved it, in which Yanukovych would share power with members of the opposition. The opposition uh, leadership went went back to the Maidanic encampment and shared this with them. And the far right elements of the uh, Maidan leadership said, no way, we want him gone. And by that point, because there was an agreement as part of that agreement for 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 a uh, coalition government in early elections, Yanukovych withdrew his security forces. So he had an agreement uh, to hold a to hold early elections and to form a new power sharing government and to own up to his end of the bargain. He withdrew his forces. But when the Maidan leadership heard about this and said that we don't want him to stay, he all of a sudden had no one there left to defend him. And so facing violent threats uh, and after a massacre where snipers killed people in the Maidan, which I can say more on in a second, he fled the country. And that killed the power sharing agreement and the Ukrainian parliament lacking lacking the required majority, selected a new government. And that government, by the way, happened to be head by a guy named Yatsenyuk, who we learned from a leaked phone call that was intercepted probably by Russia 
had been selected by Victoria Nuland, a top U.S. official, as the next leader of Ukraine. He was okay. He was selected. He was selected by the Parliament of Ukraine. Yes. Yeah. But it was, but it was not done according to, like, lawful procedure. You're saying, right? It lacked the sufficient majority. Okay. Uh, interesting. And, and there also it. it, it it also lacked the parliamentary, the the uh, the legally uh, required impeachment uh, uh, procedure. So yes, uh, I am saying that according to Ukrainian law. That, that's the so yes. it violated it, your contention is it violated Ukrainian law? That, yes. Yes. Okay. And I'm also saying, and I'm also saying that 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 if you listen to that phone call with Victoria Newland, she expresses the the U.S. position about the about the European attempts to broker a powering sharing agreement. She says, "Fuck the EU." That's what she said. So the U.S. position was basically to undermine any kind of power sharing that could leave Yanukovych in power, and get and and that's why when when Yatsenyuk and the rest of the new post coup government were installed, the U.S. cheered this on, uh, and uh, and gave its blessing, and then that made the U.S. basically a uh, the key foreign player inside Ukraine after after backing that coup. And just to <laughs> underscore how important the far right was to the Maidan protests. Um, right after the new government, at least five, uh, you know, very important cabinet positions, including the head of security, went to members of the far right party, uh, including uh, including a neo-Nazi, uh, this, this guy, uh, Parabi. So, um, you know, that's that's my take on uh, on the coup of 2014. And, and I I will link to it in the show notes for this episode. I have, I have just one more one more question. If you need to kick me off with the next person, that's that's chill. But um my my last question is how did the hostilities in Donbass emerge? I understand that the people there are mostly Russian speakers and have a different identity than like people in West Ukraine, obviously very much so. But how, did who initiated the hostilities? But was it these indigenous people? Was it Russian covert agitation? Was it Ukraine? Was there like a an indigenous secessionist movement, or was it Russian uh, triggered? Like what what in your view happened there? So the coup government comes in. One of their first moves is to revoke a law that was bitterly, bitterly opposed by the far right, which allowed Ukrainian regions to recognize a second language, so not just Ukrainian. And uh, mm-hmm. so the, the new parliament um, revoked this law that was a major priority of the, uh, of the far right. And Russian speakers in Ukraine saw this as an assault on them. Um, and they started protesting inside the Donbass and, and they sort of did what the Maidan people did. They, they took administrative buildings. And in terms of who launched the first shots, I, I actually don't know. But essentially an armed conflict broke out and it was significantly escalated in early May uh, when in the city of Odessa, there was an anti-Maidan encampment of, um, of people who supported Yanukovych and opposed the coup. And uh, hundreds of members of right sector, a right wing party, came into Odessa, including, by the way, the, the official who I mentioned, Perubi. And they attacked the anti-Maidan encampment and they forced dozens of people to flee into a nearby building. And these far right uh, forces burnt the people in the building alive. It, it, it's called the Odessa Massacre. Yeah, I'm familiar with this incident, yeah. Yeah, the official death toll is 48, but I, I think it was far higher. And that was a major inciting incident. In, and, pro- in, and probably a rallying cry for people who... Absolutely. You know, 
Okay. Absolutely. So, but, and that's, but and that's my point. That the um, the secessionist yeah. movements, obviously, Russia has assisted them. But these secessionist movements represent organic sentiment in the in the Donbass and did at the beginning. I think there's no doubt about that at all. Okay. Of course, not everyone in the Donbass is on board with them, and of course, of course, yeah. Under under their rule, they they've been brutal to their own people too. It's not it's not it hasn't been a, a utopia. But in terms of was there a, a base of popular support for resisting the coup government in the Donbass? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thanks for the discussion. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Greg, you're up. Hello. I got a couple questions, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Um, first question is, from the U.S. perspective and, I guess, the Biden administration perspective, or I guess even just the blobs perspective, what is the, what do you think the long-term goal is here? It, bringing up Mearsheimer again, he talks about how in the 1970s, when the United States was uh, engaged in the Cold War, that we made, we reached out to China because we saw that we didn't want to, we wanted to create a division between both China and Russia. I don't see that, like, in terms of realpolitik strategy that happening. And I don't understand what the, how that makes any sense in terms of strategy in any way. It seems like the United States has some odd underlying goal that I don't really understand. And maybe you have a better understanding of it than I do. Well, there is a 2019 study by RAND, the RAND Corporation, which is a Pentagon-tied think tank, and they're looking at basically the aim of the study is to look at Russian vulnerabilities. The paper is called Overextending and Unbalancing Russia. I'm writing about it for a forthcoming article. And they point out this, that expanding U.S. assistance to Ukraine, including lethal military assistance, would likely increase the cost to Russia in both blood and treasure of holding the Donbass region. So I think one U.S. goal is simply to bleed Russia, as they did to the Soviets in Afghanistan, um, justify cutting it off from the financial system and in and, and the hopes that you know doing so would weaken Russia's ability to deter U.S. hegemony. Because Russia, because it has uh, nuclear weapons and is a large country with a lot of resources, uh, can act as a deterrent to the U.S., um, not just in its own region, but around the world, like in Syria, where Russia's intervention basically uh, defeated the U.S.-backed dirty war, trying to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. And Russia has also supported governments in Latin America that have come under uh, the, uh, the, the, the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, target of uh, regime change. So I think, um, and plus trying to uh, expand NATO to surround Russia, trying to bring Ukraine into the U.S. orbit so it could be used as a proxy on Russia's borders. It could possibly host offensive U.S. weapons like the U.S. has built in Poland, which, you know, are just hundreds, hundreds of miles from reaching Moscow. I think those have been the mingles. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Have you have you listened to Peter Zion before giving his lectures? He, he talks in those kind of terms where, you know, it's either you let Russia die a slow demographic death or we draw them into a uh, occupation that bleeds them like Afghanistan did for the Russians and did for us to a degree. And uh, also he says that Russia's impetus for expanding is to create buffer states and buffer zones between uh, 
the capital or Moscow and and a potential invasion force because that's what they've done throughout history and that's what has helped them uh, many times in the past because if Ukraine is taken strategically it allows an, a potential adversary to station uh, military assets not just nuclear but normal military assets yeah. on the border that could cut off um, cut off the heartland you know the Russia's heartland from the south where all their gas is and also easily get into moscow yeah but to me it doesn't make any sense because china in terms of and i don't believe in like that realpolitik completely but i understand it but china is the bigger adversary so why are we not pivoting towards asia and laser beam focused on russia right now are we gambling that china might switch sides or whatever i mean uh, well there might be people in washington who think that somehow China would switch sides to the U.S., but that hasn't happened, obviously. It's, it's pretty clear that China is in Russia's corner. And look, like on the point about a buffer zone, why wouldn't we all want a buffer zone between two top nuclear powers? A buffer zone seems to be in everybody's interest. Why would we want to have a hostile military alliance on Russia's borders, just as we wouldn't want to have a hostile military alliance on U.S. borders? It's 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 a, It's a recipe for disaster, but yet it's been the guiding policy in Washington for for many years now. Of course, it wasn't always that way, and many eminent U.S. diplomats warned against it when it was happening, but now those people are in the minority. And uh, and think also about why Russia might be worried about having an offensive military alliance on its borders, given its history in the 20th century of being destroyed, invaded uh, catastrophically, um, especially, of course, by the Nazis. So, I mean, the that history is very uh, entrenched and influential in Russian culture. And I think it's just folly to, to ignore that. Yep. Yeah. Definitely agree with that. Can I ask one more question? Yeah. Um, long-term I, from what I understand and what I've heard, I haven't actually read this article. People, even within the Russian inner circle were surprised that this invasion happened. Um, and I was under the impression it wasn't going to happen. I mean, I didn't see, I, I thought he would need to build up at least a hundred thousand more soldiers and troops on his border, and or on the border of Ukraine to conduct an operation that would be. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? It might be successful, but even if it is, are, are, how are they going to occupy Ukraine, and what is the end goal there? I mean, I I, I don't see that work working out very well, especially if the West continues to funnel in weapons and. I mean, do you see maybe I could see uh, potentially Western Ukraine being used as a bargaining chip because that would be a nightmare for the Russians to occupy. Mm-hmm. And I also see them in terms of military tactics. They, you know, you see these long columns of of of, of trucks and stuff, and they're only at least up in the northern parts of Ukraine. They're experiencing the Rasputitsa right now, which is the big mud. Uh, goo fest that comes every year when it thaws out or it starts to rain in the in the fall and to me it seems odd that i mean the russians should know of anyone that this is not a ideal time to invade and it just military militarily and strategically it's a very odd invasion to analyze although you know who knows what's real and what's what that's the problem that's the problem it's you know i've I've lost so much trust for Western analysts that 
when they say, for example, that the convoy has been stalled because of fierce Ukrainian resistance, that's possible, right? But it also could just be that Russia doesn't want to invade Kiev yet because it's hoping to use the threat of an, of taking over Kiev as sufficient to get Zelensky to agree to whatever Russia is asking for now, neutrality and whatever else. So it's um, it's very difficult for me to make analysis like that from here. Yeah, and Zelensky seems pretty i mean people like to say putin is unhinged but zelensky is saying some pretty unhinged things too like asking for a no fly zone that seems uh pretty (laughs) elementary as to why you wouldn't want to do that if you want the whole world to uh continue existing (laughs) well he's in a position where he's staked out his position and that was basically to um uh, not not take Russia's threat seriously. And, you know, he even went right before the invasion, he went to the, to the Munich Security Conference and said that yeah. Ukraine might seek nuclear weapons, which I thought was really a reckless thing to say and very provocative. Yeah. It may, may have influenced Russia's decision for all I know. But at the same time, he's defending his country. They're, they're being attacked. They have the right to resist it. And if you're being bombed by such a powerful military, it's understandable why you'd want a no-fly zone. Unfortunately for him, that would come at the expense of World War III, and that's why the U.S. won't implement it. And that's why I think the U.S. was so reckless to not do all it could to prevent Zelensky from being in this position. I have, even though I, like I, you know, it's hard for me to judge him, especially in the context of being a leader of a invaded country, and it's, I imagine that's very stressful and difficult. But, and also, as I talked about before, he really faced a very serious threat from from the Ukrainian far right, who literally threatened his life. And, yeah, I, I remember. And, and, and threatened his political future. And th- this was recognized. Um, this was recognized by his own officials too. Um, let me quote you a uh, a few people. So there's a guy named Yuri Hudimenko, leader of the far right Democratic Axe. He said this right before the Russian invasion and talking about uh, the prospect of Zelensky signing a peace deal with Russia. He said, if anybody from the Ukrainian government tries to sign such a document, a million people will will take to the streets and that government will cease being the government. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, shortly in January, um, Zelensky's security chief said this, the fulfillment of the Minsk agreement means the country's destruction. That's what he said in late January. Now, that's not what Zelensky ran on. Zelensky ran on actually essentially implementing Minsk and reaching peace. So something changed in between his election and now. And that was basically being constantly threatened by the far right, you know, uh, and the U.S. not doing anything to help him out. So I, I, that's where I have sympathy for him, even though I do think, yes, he's acted very recklessly. Yeah. And his I, I remember hearing that he went to the front lines in the in the DNR in the LNR and, you know, he tried to get, you know, the commanders to leave and they basically told him to F off. (laughs) There's a, there's, there's video of that. And he says, he's like kind of pleading with them. He's saying, I'm not a loser. I'm the president of the country. And they're basically dismissing him with contempt. And on this, I really recommend an article at the gray zone that was just published by Alex Rubenstein and Max Blumenthal. And I'll link to it too, where they, they essentially, it's about how Zelensky, you know, who's Jewish, uh, made peace with Ukrainian Nazis. And he had to do that, I think, in this position he was in, um, facing threats to his life and no help from the U.S. in the countervailing direction. So it's like 
I mean, it's it's awful, but I I also think in this equation he's relatively powerless. Well, that's because ultimately, I mean, I'm sure we, even though we like to say we didn't, I'm sure we played a role in arming and and training those right wing militias. Like there's that article on Yahoo News that you know we were training them, um, and we've done that for a long time since the Cold War. Like we've always had that 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 uh those underground armies like in Italy and in many parts of Europe that were, you know, funded right wing groups. That, yes. You know, it's it's nothing new. So yes, and this became such a, a problem that John Conyers got a measure passed in 2018 that bars U.S. military assistance to the to the Azov Battalion because it was happening, and he wanted to stop it. But even though that's U.S. law, everyone knows that once the weapons get over there, that there's way there's you know that they they always fall in the in the worst people's hands. That's what happened. That's what happened in Syria when the CIA was not supposed to be arming Al Qaeda, but they would give their, you know, weapons to one militia and then Al-Qaeda would either just uh, work with that militia and use the weapons or they would, Al-Qaeda would simply just grab it and uh, and just take it because they're the much more powerful force. And I think there's a similar d- dynamic in, in Ukraine right now where just the far right, even if numerically they're not huge, they just have such an outsized influence in the military, which is just what happens. And one last part to that question is how survivable do you think is Putin's regime? Is it, is it, I mean, I I know there's examples of regimes obviously collapsing, but you also have examples of countries like Cuba who've lasted for 60 years under American sanctions. So I don't know. If Cuba, if Cuba can last and Venezuela can last and Iran can last under U S sanctions, I think Putin's government can definitely last too. If I was, I mean, who knows, right? You never know. But if I was placing bets on political survival, I would go with Putin. I, um, yeah. But you know what? Yeah. And he's, he's, um, he does have the support of Russia's elite, the oligarchs and the strong men. And that's, I think what ultimately is what it will come down to. All right. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. All right. Next caller. Hello, Mr. Martin. Hi there. How much time do I have, Mr. Martin? 30 seconds? Uh, you have longer than 30 seconds. I do want everyone to be as concise as possible because there's a lot of callers, but go ahead. I will do my utmost to be concise, Mr. Martin. Well, in part because of your excellent work, Mr. Martin, I really have no question to ask you, but I should like to make a few comments on my own to get it off my chest, if you don't mind. Go ahead. Well, the day the Russia invaded, I had a flicker of hope that it would be over in a few days. Of course, I turned out to be wrong. It looks now as if this is going to go on for some time now, Mr. Martin, and things are going to change slightly in Europe. For better or for worse, nobody knows. And that this government, as Hillary Clinton publicly proclaimed with a broad smile on her face, is going to do uh, what Carter administration did. That's right. Afghanistan. That's right. So we, so we can safely say this is going to go on for some time now. Well... It's especially interesting to read your Twitter feeds these days, Mr. Mate, to uh, read your little spats, uh-huh. your colleagues. 
Uh huh. Let's try to get to let's try to get to the question or or comment. Well, but as I told you, I don't have any question to ask you. That, but okay. I just want to. All right. I just make a few comments out on the scene of the the U.S. media. That's my next point. But I should like to make, if you would allow me, Mr. Martin. You know what? I want to keep the queue moving. So if you don't have a question, I'm gonna I'm gonna no. move on to the next caller. But I thank you for uh, for calling in. But if you say so. Thank you. Thank you. James, you're up. Hello. Yes. Hello, testing. One, two, three. Yeah. Okay. We can hear you. Yeah, I was just uh, getting the hang of this Android app. You you kind of partially answered the question I was planning on asking earlier and the couple previous, but I, I did I did want to get your take about like the threat of a alleged, you know, right wing deposition on Zelensky and the current Ukrainian government, like, um, and you, you seem to analyze, uh, you seem to have explained it pretty well previously, but I did want to get your take on that strange, I guess, developing story about apparently one of the Ukrainian delegate delegates to uh, Russia has been killed, quote, yeah. resisting arrest. Denis Kidyev was yeah. killed. Ukrainian ministry is claiming he's a hero, but one of the I guess the internal security service is claiming he was a traitor. Yes. I'm just wondering if this is kind of like, you know, a shot across the bow on the Zelensky government. Like, this is your fate if you, you know, decide to negotiate with Russia. You know, do you think that's a possibility here? Well, look, I mean, think about what that says about how dysfunctional the Ukrainian government is. You have a negotiator being accused of treason. And instead of being arrested for it, he's just shot dead. (laughs) That's not what governments do when they have a potential traitor. They arrest them. Even in times of war, there's a way to detain him. They just assassinated him. Then you have the fact that another uh, Ukrainian ministry doesn't agree with the decision, and they call them a hero. So you have a deeply divided, dysfunctional government, and you, you see right now there's a power struggle going on, basically. And that is not good news for Ukraine. It's uh, It's very, very ominous. And... As for why he was killed, whether he was a traitor or not, I have no idea. But uh, it raises all sorts of possibilities, and none of them are good. I mean, if he was killed because basically, for example, if this was an effort by someone inside the Ukrainian government to to kill diplomacy with Russia, that's that's a very bad sign. That's a very bad sign. But, But unfortunately, it's, you know, there's only so much we can gauge because it's all speculation but just the fact he was killed not arrested and then you have the fact that not the that, that another ukrainian ministry called him a hero that uh, that speaks to a, just a really bad state for the ukrainian government yeah it makes me worried because all this talk about like how you know the west has to support ukraine as a quote fellow democracy yet you know they're just out there killing members of their own government in this manner if this indeed was just a killing and not you know quote resisting arrest it seems very you know very ex-soviet style you know how they claim that someone was killed, you know, because he was a traitor to the state or whatever. And it's just makes me wondering, make, makes me wonder if, you know, the, the U.S. also has like a, quote, backup plan if, say, Zelensky is deposed or killed by far right elements. You know, they, they plan on replacing him with some other yes man that's going to just extend the war further and, you know, to the detriment of millions of Ukrainians. Because, you know, the Washington Post is starting to argue, you know, oh, if, you know, Zelensky is removed or we have plans for, you know, evacuating the government to, you know, Lviv, you know, it's kind of like implying that the, the U.S. especially wants this war to go as long as possible. Yes. Uh, all that's very ominous. It's, it's very, very, um, it's very ominous. And I just look, it's possible 
they went to arrest him and he's he's a double agent so he pulls a gun and he starts that's all possible but i i don't know i strongly doubt it and we, um, we live in time. <laughs> yeah 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 okay thanks thank you james thank you hello how are you doing also doom scrolling too much or not are you asking me if i'm doom scrolling too much or are you saying yeah basically because for me i don't know i guess other people are the same it's been crazy week just yeah i definitely do i definitely do my fair share of doom scrolling absolutely do you have any advice to not go crazy from from (laughs) it because i see so many terrifying things on tv yeah or like polling that 70% wants an offline or oh, of US citizens right wants an offline zone you had like okay, a British... okay well that's that's a good one first of all when the question is posed differently the number drops and you just have to you know look it's quite possible that most many people who answer that question don't know really what a no fly zone would mean the, that the poll question doesn't explain that essentially this could lead to world war 3 people don't know that that they they just see the question like should we not have flights over the certain zone that are bombing people? Sure, why not? You know, so with news like that, I would just think about other plausible, uh, plausible um, explanations for the number of people who support it that aren't nearly as scary. And um, and I and I, you will see if you look at other ways in which the question is asked that support for no fly zone drops. I mean, that makes sense, but it feels like that's still incredibly dangerous, right? If just phrasing it a little bit, all of a sudden there's, it seems that there is a massive support for launching World War Three, And you see it, I think, also in Europe, like there's a lot of aggression against Russians or possibly pro-Russian people. So it's like, I, I don't think I've ever lived through something like this. Like the Iraq war was maybe like this, that you were pro-Saddam, but yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree. This is, this is scarier. Um, in terms of jingoism and chauvinism, this is scarier than the Iraq war because th- during the Iraq war, there was some mainstream dissent. Now there's no mainstream dissent allowed. There's nothing. You turn on any cable network and honestly, the only voice of dissent is uh, a few people on Fox News. And <laughs> that's a scary prospect that the only place for dissent right now is Fox News. That yeah. is, it's definitely scary. And I'm, you know, I, I know in Europe, things are very similar so yeah it's a scary time um i'll just say you know look uh you know you know best how how to negate how to deal with the uh the fear that all this instills it's you know we all um for me it's uh, i'm personally grateful that i have the privilege to not be in a war zone and for me the scariest thing is just what i see on tv or read about you know i don't actually experience it so we're actually all of us in a position to say that are an incredibly fortunate position. That's true. You recommend any music to listen to, to <laughs> deal with it? Uh, I Look, I, I don't know what your tastes are, so it's not my place to recommend music. I'm a, I love I, Marvin Gaye, so you can do oh, anything okay. appropriate. Right, well, here, here, why don't you message me on Colin, and I'll, I'll send you some music, okay? Perfect, perfect. Okay, perfect. okay. all right, all right. Vladimir, you are up. You hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, I was trying to also figure out how to uh, unmute myself. But, um, yeah, I'm calling in because a friend of mine actually called in and a co-worker called and talked to you last time, and he told me about the show. 
So I listened to the last one and I'm listening to this one as well. I happen to come from the Donbass region. Um, that's where I grew up. I live in the United States. I've traveled there three times since 2014. And um, so I saw things firsthand that were happening there. And, um, you know, so the other day I was actually, I saw a poster in front of someone's house saying, pray for Ukraine. And uh, in no way do I support any civilians being caught up in this kind of thing because I've seen what happens. But, you know, for many people, the war started, what, eight, ten days ago? Uh, yeah. People there, it's been going on for almost eight years now. And uh, in 2016, it was July 10th, and I remember that date. Clearly, I was in the city of Gorlovka. It was shelled by Ukrainian troops. I went, it was around the railroad station, Nikilovka railroad station. I went, I took pictures, just wanted to see it for myself, what happened, the aftermath. And a few days later, an article on Newsweek came out saying, and uh, it was titled, uh, Putin invades Ukraine as NATO bolsters defense. And to me, at that point, it was just the breaking moment. I realized that the media slanted things and biased them really heavily. But this time just made me realize that, you know, what they what they show to people here in the United States and in Europe and what happens on the ground, there are completely different things to the point of, you know, it's just there, there's no truth in it. It's not just bias. It's just it's it's lies. Right. So um, I still have relatives living there. I talked to my cousin today. The city of Gorlovka was shelled again, residential areas today. And so was Donetsk. And um, here in the media, you don't hear much about that, if anything at all, right? So you hear, you see these horrific scenes of um, civilians fleeing in mainland Ukraine. You don't see anything that's going on in Donbass, but it is still being heavily shelled, right? Especially cities that are like up in the north, Gorlovka, Donetsk, then Volnovaha in the south. Um, that's where, like, I guess a lot of fighting is happening now. Mariupol is surrounded. But I just, you know, those people living there in that region have no voice. Like I said, I saw I saw the sign saying, pray for Ukraine, but it's not just, I mean, what is Ukraine? They consider us Ukrainians. And yes, I am half Ukrainian, half Russian, actually. That's how what it happens to be. But those people have no voice. And I just, this is, I guess, not a question. This is more of a comment and appreciation for what you do and speaking up about this. So just, I, I just wanted to say thank you. Well, Vladimir, thanks so much for sharing that. You're exactly the kind of person I've been trying to talk about when I talk about this conflict and I invoke the term from Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman's book, Manufacturing Consent, uh, of unworthy victims. Unworthy victims are people who are attacked and killed with U.S. support, and so they don't exist. Worthy victims are the victims of U.S. enemies. So, for example, all the people being attacked and killed right now by Russia, but we're not allowed to focus on unworthy victims, such as the people in the Donbass who've been living through this war, not just for the last 10 days, but for the last eight years. And so I really appreciate you sharing your perspective. It's um. It's, you know, we never, we, you're exactly you're right. We never hear voices like yours in Western media. And actually, um, I'd like to follow up with you because I've been trying to, to reach people who have been on the ground in Donbass and who can speak to a Western audience. So I will, if it's okay with you, I'll send you a message. In Absolutely, Aaron. Yeah. I actually tried to contact journalists in Seattle 
and um, I contacted my congressman as well. I got blown off, so of I course. would appreciate it. Yes, yeah, yes, of course. Okay, well, thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much. Mark, you're up. And if you're there, Mark, you hit the microphone icon. There you go. Yeah, I just had to set the permissions. Hi, Aaron. Um, first things first, um, thank you for all the work that you're doing and taking my call. Mark, if you could uh, speak a uh, into the, Is this any better? This is better, yeah. Okay, thank you. So starting over again. First things first, um, thank you for your, all the work that you're doing and taking my call. I'm calling from the other side of the Atlantic, not as close as Vladimir, but geographically. So I guess one could say that I'm a little less detached uh, from what's happening on this te tectonic plate than most other callers, namely Germany. And um, Mark, you're still a little quiet. Sorry, you're still a little quiet. So if you could oh, speak for, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did yeah. you catch what I said? Or did I did. Repeat? Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Go ahead. Um, now to my question. Um, how does one keep one's optimism that reason will prevail when you're looking at what the mainstream media and many Western nations, mostly in the Northern Hemisphere, as well as those governments are conveying? And yes, some of that will simply be war propaganda. It appears to me that some of those actors seem to ignore, although I believe behind closed doors, they do pretty well know what they're doing, um, that they are adding fuel to the fire that could actually turn nuclear. And mm -hmm. I'm relatively close, and Germany would be one of them. It's not really nice uh, to think of that prospect. So um, as Russia is a serious nuclear power, contrary to Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, or say Kosovo back then, um, how do you keep your optimism that it won't spiral out of control? I mean, looking at um, today's news that the USA tries to talk Poland into accepting or sending over uh, military jets that would just further escalate things. Well, if you're looking for optimism, you can look at the fact that the U.S. continues to rule out a no-fly zone. I know that's just, a low. I know that's yeah. a low bar. I, I know that's a low bar because, of course, a, a no-fly zone would would mean World War Three. But there are U.S. there are U.S. politicians who openly advocate it. And uh, so far, they're not being um, catered to, at least not publicly. So that's a source for optimism. But look, it's it's hard. I'm not going to lie. It's hard to say optimistic. But the question is, optimism is tethered to things that are outside of our control. You know, we can't control what happens. What we can control is our reaction and our determination to push for the most peaceful outcome for everybody. And that's okay. so that's what I'm concerned about. It's... um. It's hard to stay optimistic in this world, and it's getting, it's getting increasingly more difficult. But I am determined, and as I am committed. Thought, yep, yeah. sorry, go, on. go ahead. Um, as a last thought, to potentially give uh, more space to other people like Vladimir, whose input is really important, you've pointed out. To me over here, it feels a bit like what Lord Ismay said uh, about NATO, who was the uh, first Secretary, Secretary General of the United Nations that it's uh, to keep the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans down, so it mm -hmm. can prevent that um, connection between... Um, and, yeah, um, please continue your work, and because you are a voice, to me at least, from all seeing as subjective, um, a voice of reason. Well, thanks. Thanks. I really appreciate that. And okay. thanks for calling, Mark. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, Aaron. You Hi. Me? Yes. Hi. Good evening. Um, I'd like to, to bring one uh, comment and, uh, and a question. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur from Italy, and uh, one week ago I had 50% of my business in Italy and 50% in Russia. Mm. 
and now I'm looking at basically laying off 20 people. But that's not really the point. I mean, I, I, I'm inside. I, I came back to, from Russia on Thursday. The situation is really tough also on the border. So my, my comment is one maybe hint about your article. So I read a lot about 800,000 passports, Russian passports given out in Donbass, right? And um, what I think people do not realize is that there was no change whatsoever in the laws of uh, how to get a Russian passport. So the only changes that were made in the last eight years after the conflict in Donbass started is basically Russia said, if you are from Donbass, you can bring your uh, papers to Rostov or to whatever uh, whatever agency, the Ministry of Interior, and get your nationalization. And uh, how does people do that? But they do it because they have uh, wives, they have kids, they were born in Russia, and they happen to live in Donetsk. So they have a full right to get these passports. It's not like there is an ATM machine, you put 100 rubles and you get a passport and you write your name. They are really Russian people. Yeah. And um, this means there is a huge constituency. So when, when Russia is painted as an autocracy, as a regime, it's not actually like that. When you work there for eight years, like I did, it's like more, more of a populist thing. It's more like a full-fledged Trump, uh, <laughs> I don't know exactly, because I'm from Italy, but we had populists here as well, but it's more like Trump had won and implemented all the agenda. So Putin, like, he tried with COVID restrictions, then he took them out when he saw that Russian people didn't want to get vaccinated. You have people like Valentina Matvienko, who is the third person most powerful in, in Russia, and she's from Ukraine, mm -hmm. born in Ukraine. So. It's not well understood the, the level of four million people and all their relatives in Russia. They have the pressure they can make on the Russian government to take such reckless and idiotic decision to invade Ukraine, which is a disaster, which is a complete utter disaster. I'm not justifying anything now. Yeah. But but I, I, I'm just accenting this angle, which I don't think it's fully covered. Sorry. I, I, I no, no. Listen, I I appreciate the insight, and I I hadn't thought about that when it comes to passport. Just to explain for people. Just the significance of that is that Russia giving passports to people in the Donbass is seen as a sort of imperial move, right? And you're saying that really that's just a uh, a, a natural process that happens when you have a uh, Russian family, uh, Russian origin, and you're living in eastern Ukraine exactly. uh, and right next door. Imagine the, the, the pensioner living off $50 a month on a Ukrainian pension. Yeah. He has all the rights to claim a $200 pension. So. That's basically, it's on the border between life and death. Especially, by the way, especially, and this was true early on in the Donbass War, when the, the U.S.-backed government, when they came in, and one, when the war broke out, they cut off pension payments for people in the Donbass for a period. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so, so that's an angle that I don't think it's really comprehensive. Maybe uh, I'm asking you because I don't have much faith in covering this well, thanks for to note that that's a good thing to note. Look, I'm constantly learning about Russia. My special, I talk a lot about Russia related matters, but really my focus has been Russiagate, the way Russia has been, the, the way Russia was been used and discussed in the U.S. And for Russia, for, you know, for knowledge of Russia's internal dynamics, I would turn to my late mentor, Stephen F. Cohen. 
uh, you know, the uh, leading scholar of Russian studies in the U.S. who is no longer with us and his absence is deeply felt. So, listen, I appreciate tips like this because it um, they help, you know, create uh, sort of uh, give us a more realistic picture of Russia than the cartoonish portrayal that we get here. Yeah. So thank you for that. And I also have a question. Yes. The question is related to sanctions. Uh, I, I feel them uh, as an entrepreneur. Yes. I, 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 they cut an arm off of me because I used to build this, and now it's completely destroyed. And I know that the fault is Russia because they invaded you. But nevertheless, so just for, for speaking with my employees, so basically when, when you take a yacht from Abramovich shop or whoever, there's half of Russians who say, yeah, I don't care, and half of Russians will, will cheer up because they say, well, he deserves it finally. He robbed us of everything, these oligarchs. They robbed us of our lives. And now finally they get the same payment back. So hooray. And, and that's okay, right? And then the first sanctions wave. And then the second sanctions wave is they, they close IKEA. Now, I don't think any Russian ever saw Abramovich buying things in IKEA or buying a Ford, for that matter. So 2,600 people laid off in by Toyota. And this, I'm afraid... And that's the question for you. How do you think this is going to drive radicalization? So are we looking at Russia becoming like Iran with thousands of people cheering in Ayatollah? Because it's, it's really looking like the average Russian, when, when they turn down Apple Pay, he thinks, okay, so they were not against oligarchs. They always hated us. Yes, yes, yes. And they think I'm afraid. And unfortunately for Mark and the people that commented before, I'm, I'm really afraid that this escalation can become can become really, really fast, very bad, very hard. So well, I share that fear too. I, I share that fear too. And obviously, when the U.S. imposes these economic warfare measures like this, the aim is to turn the people against the government. But... All the literature on that, even putting aside the issue of morality, do we have the right to deprive people of their basic rights and needs because we want to overthrow their government? Putting that aside, it doesn't work. When I was in Venezuela a few years ago, I definitely met people who had turned against the government because they were sick of being unable to download apps that they needed and unable to buy the basic necessities that they needed because of the U.S. economic blockade. But I also met a lot of people who were totally – defiant and, you know, refused to accept the U.S. trying to change their government and making them suffer as a result. And, and they were willing to to be deprived of their basic needs if it meant not giving in to the hegemon that was trying to change their society and, and, and destroy their like the fabric of their of their social and economic life. So in Russia, I um, again, not being there and um not being on the ground, it's hard for me to make, you know, declarative pronouncements, but my sense is that it won't be any different, that people will rally around the flag as, as they always do in these situations. Uh, at least a part of them. Everybody no, sure. Yeah, of course. But, but the significance, it's, it's not coming to radicalization. Yes, yes, yes. That's yeah. Very ugly. It's very ugly indeed. Thank you, Fran, for, uh, for calling Thank in. You Thank you. Much. Thank you. Okay. Samir. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Yeah. Um, so my question is about, so you hear this fear mongering in the Western media about, you know, Putin, you know, would go in, into Poland or Finland, any other neighboring countries. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that he has any reason to, to go in there. And it, it seems like the U.S. is almost trying to provoke him 
into doing so. And so my question is, do you just see that as fear mongering? Like, what are the chances of Putin taking that next step? And and what is what incentive would he have to do that? Well, first, let me acknowledge that I got something wrong in predicting Putin's moves. I said he wouldn't or said I really doubted that he would invade. And I, I was wrong about that. So I could be wrong now in saying that, no, I don't think Putin will invade Poland. That would trigger Article 5 of NATO and trigger World War III. I think his aims in Ukraine have been made very clear. He sees Ukraine as tied to Russia, and he thinks it should be neutral and not a part of NATO. He also wants to put an end to the the war in the Donbass. So those are very specific aims that I don't think will extend beyond Ukraine. Okay, and, and then just to add on to that, um, it, like, what would it take for him to do that? Because, you know, he said that, the sanctions are de- declaration of war. I don't think he's going to really act on that. But in terms of, you know, the U.S. Uh, or sorry, Poland supplying jets and the U.S. sort of backfilling that, what do you think it would take for him to, to take that next step? Well, they have warned that anybody shipping, uh, anybody supplying weapons uh, to Ukraine and anybody entering the war on their behalf would be a target. So I think that's what would trigger uh, a Russian attack on on Polish warplanes is if they actually entered into the Ukrainian space. I don't see them going into Polish territory. And by the way, you know, on this question, there's a contradiction, right? The, the same people who are warning that Putin is not going to stop in Ukraine, he's going to conquer other places in Europe, are the same ones also saying that, you know, Russia has been seriously hampered by brave Ukrainian resistance. So if Russia can't even defeat Ukraine, over which it has vast military superiority, uh, um, how then could it possibly uh, go on to other countries? It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't, and it, the answer is it doesn't, it can't, it doesn't have the power to do that, to invade other countries on top of occupying Ukraine right now. So the, um, the premise of the fear mongering about Russia invading other countries is, is undermined by the uh, claims made by the same people who, who raised the alarm about that invasion, you know? So I just don't yeah. think that's a serious prospect. All right. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Tony. And Tony, if you're there, there's a microphone icon in the bottom right that you have to hit to unmute yourself. And I will give you five seconds to do it or else we have to move on. Can you hear me now? Yes. There you go. Hi. Yeah. How do we get out of this mess? You know, I pay a, a good amount of attention to the media and all I hear is talk about, uh, war and how to escalate the war. Yeah. And I hear absolutely nothing about uh, making peace. I know there are negotiations going on, but I've heard nothing specific about what those negotiations are. And I get the feeling that at least in the United States, there's a there's an intent to actually avoid bringing up these issues of what what is on the table to negotiate, because it take it may take some of the fire out of those who would like to see this this whole thing escalated. And so given the fact that uh, we're not just talking about, uh, uh, you know, a war somewhere in, in the Middle East or, or in Africa, we're talking about a war that that potentially risks the use of nuclear weapons. And I just can't figure out why we have, for example, a UN uh, Secretary General. And where are these people? I mean, who are the, pa- the peacemakers at this point, in your view? Has anybody risen to that task well france tried germany tried uh 
Israel tried. The Israeli prime minister flew to Moscow on a secret mission. And, um, but essentially the message from Russia, as, as I understand it, just reading the news reports, was that Ukraine has to agree to neutrality. And Ukraine is not willing to do that yet. So the war goes on. Well, um, you know, that's a message that um, I think many Americans, if not most Americans, would, would, would agree that that makes sense. But unfortunately, when I listen to uh, mainstream media, uh, that point isn't even raised. I mean, you, ha- you have no clue if you just listen to mainstream media as to what actually is on the table and what the options are. And I, I just find that really strange that uh, there's, there's, in my view, from what I see, there's a blackout on that kind of a discussion. Well, yeah, because the U.S. media is generally in line with the U.S. state goal, and the U.S. state goal is basically to bog Russia down in a insurgency. And so for them, peace is not on the table and not really a prospect worthy of discussing. And they also just the, they associate agreeing to Russian demands as some kind of capitulation. And that's up to for people to judge. Is it crazy for Russia to ask that Ukraine be neutral and not a part of a hostile military alliance on on Russia's borders. I think it would be reasonable for the U.S. to ask of that in its neighborhood. So if we don't want a hostile military alliance here, why should we try to impose it on Russia over there? And Russia also wants an end to the, the proxy war, where the U.S., by its own admission, has been funneling billions of dollars to Ukraine to, in Adam Smith's words, fight Russia over there. So this is Russia's very uh, brutal and illegal and murderous way of ending the fight. But we can't, because we just accept that we have the right to do that, to wage a proxy war in the Donbass and bleed Russia, these kinds of questions and prospects of resolving the issue in a way that takes Russian concerns seriously are just not allowed to be discussed. Is it your sense that um, media figures and much of the American public believes that, um, that that Ukraine can actually win this war? No, I don't think they believe that. No, I don't. I don't. And if, that's, don't. Yeah, if that's the case, then what's the what's the next likely scenario? Some type of a military stalemate, uh, which would, of course, lead to negotiations, which is something that apparently has been, uh, for the large part, uh, avoided by the United States. Or it's just what Hillary Clinton laid out when she was on the Rachel Maddow show this week when she just talked about an insurgency like the U.S. did to the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. I think that seems to me the most plausible explanation for their behavior in terms of what they're going for. And I just think that's crazy. It's suicidal. You know, given that they knew that NATO membership was a red line for Russia, given that they knew that Ukraine's prospects for joining NATO uh, were not very high, it just seems so crazy for the U.S. to not entertain taking that off the table, especially when they were very confident that Putin would invade over it. So they essentially felt it was more important to stand up for this theoretical military alliance that had many obstacles to it uh, over avoiding a catastrophic war. It's um, and, and that's perhaps because they wanted this and they wanted to bog Russia down into an insurgency, which is a, it's a dark thought, but it's, it's a, it's a possibility. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how Russia would react to that kind of scenario where 
where uh, you would have a, an ongoing indefinite insurgency. I mean, obviously, it uh, <laughs> from a military standpoint, it would be a nightmare. So maybe the thinking is that uh, that would be a disincentive for Russia to remain in Ukraine, with, with the possible exception of the eastern part of the country. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, well, listen. Right. I appreciate the I appreciate the discussion and, and keep up your great work. Thank you. I appreciate that. Bye. Bye. Jeff, you're up. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Hi, Aaron. We've uh, interacted a few times uh, online. I wanted to just talk about you know the UK perspective of what's going on. Sure. Um, I think um, because you know. I think the UK has had probably, you know, the most bellicose stand of any nation in Europe. Um, I think at the beginning of the crisis, France and Germany had a much more reasonable approach. Um, but uh, obviously, you know, it's all a very anti-Russian approach now. But actually, I was going to bring out the main opposition party in the UK, which is Keir Starmer. And uh, something interesting happened... Uh, this past week, um, there's an organisation here called the Stop the War Coalition, and a number of left-leaning Labour MPs uh, signed their names to a statement by the Stop the War Coalition, which uh, roundly condemned uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, but it also criticised uh, NATO expansion and uh, you know many things the West had done to get us to where we are today. And um, they were actually um, threatened by the party leadership that they would lose the party whip if they didn't withdraw their names from the statement. And uh, unfortunately, they did so. Except for Jeremy Corbyn, interestingly, because he already doesn't have the party whip. But that's a, a different story to, you know, too involved to get into here. And what does the party whip mean again? Oh, sorry. Yeah, we have a parliamentary system here, so it's probably not obvious. Um, it basically means that you're not considered a part of the parliamentary party. Um, you're basically sitting as an independent MP at that point. Gotcha. Huh. Uh, so um, that was very dispiriting. And uh, actually, Keir Starmer has come out since then, and he said that um, any uh, Labour MP that criticises NATO will just be booted out, booted out of the party. Um, and he's talked about, um, you know, that there'll be no place in the Labour Party under his leadership for any what he calls moral equivalence between NATO and Russia. And well, yes, I think this that's is crazy. Yes, well, and this is all just a continuation of the purge that's been underway ever since Jeremy Corbyn won the leadership, and there's just been this nonstop attempt to purge the Labour Party of all Corbynites and all people who think differently than Tony Blair and Keir Starmer. Yeah, it's really grim. And yeah. um, just another point I wanted to make was I've noticed sometimes when discussing this issue with Eastern European friends, they can, there's sort of a touchiness, a sensitivity that, you know, surrounding the, the issue of Eastern European nations having the right to join NATO. And I know that... Um, you know, you've dealt with this as well. The, um, you know, we're often accused of denying East Europeans, you know, agency. It reminds me kind of, you know, the debate with Syria. When we talk about the dirty war, 
some people accuse us of denying the Syrian, you know, the Syrians' agency. And um, I, had a, I had a strange conversation, actually, with an East European friend. Where I said, Let me say quickly, Jeff, that when people say that about Syria, they're, they themselves are denying agency to all those Syrians who don't want to live under al-Qaeda and don't want to have their country destroyed in a dirty war, no matter their strong disagreements with, the gut, with their government. And oh, no, I agree. I totally to people, agree. So, so this thing about agency is such a um, – to me, it's an act of projection. For example, no one actually looks at what Ukrainians actually think. And I talked about this before, and I read about this in my article. At the time of the coup in 2014 – when everybody was saying that this was a, a pure expression of Ukrainians' agency and democratic will, half the country was against the coup. And in fact, according to some polls, a, a majority was opposed to it. And well, less than half the country wanted to join NATO. And less than half the country wanted to join the European Union. Now, that's changed in the years since. You know, support for NATO has gone up. But part of the reason for that is because 3.8 million people in the Donbass are no longer being polled because they're... Yeah in a breakaway region. So all these facts get lost in the conversation about agency and, you know, things change when you're, when the U S is playing such a deep role. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to have an influence on people. And by the way, too, what also gets lost is that Zelensky, when he came into power and, and um, he took three pro Russian or Russian aligned opposition television stations off of the air. And so, in that context, is it fair to talk about Ukrainian agency when TV stations of, of with dissenting opinions are being censored and opposition leaders are being put under house arrest? I mean, all that gets gets lost in in these kind of talking points. Yeah, you, know, you could say Ukraine is a lot like Putin's Russia in some ways, you know, with the corruption and the arrest of opposition leaders. And Absolutely. Like Absolutely. Um, I was just going to say that um, I was talking to an East European friend and... Um, it was interesting because he said to me that, you know, European states, you know, should have the right to, to join NATO. And I said, well, how do you think the U.S. would respond if Mexico wanted to join a, a military alliance led by Russia? And his answer was actually quite interesting. He said to me, um, if Latin American states that had been historically, uh, you know, persecuted by the United States, like Cuba or Venezuela or Nicaragua, if they wanted to... Uh, you know, join a Russian-led military alliance, they would have that right. And I wasn't quite sure what to say about that. Well, except the U.S. would never let that happen. No, of course not. No. And Russia stood by and watched it happen in the Baltic states, despite the pledges at the end of the Soviet Union. And at Ukraine, it drew a red line. Yeah. And that's what, and look, and that's what people do. Theoretically, of course, everyone should have the, jo- the right to join whatever alliance they want. But in the real world, it just doesn't work like that. I mean, uh, in the real world, the U.S. can invade any sovereign nation that it wants to, and no one can do anything. So in that world, where the basics of international law are already undermined, then Russia is going to do take the steps that it takes to defend its own sphere of influence. And it's a question of what is within the realm of reason, of reason or not. And also, the right to join a military alliance is not the only sacrosanct right in international affairs. The right to self-defense is also a right. And if a hostile military alliance is expanding to your borders, if the U.S. already has missile sites in Poland that can hit Moscow, then Russia is going to see an effort to bring another country right on its borders into a hostile military alliance as a 
as a threat to its security. And we're seeing now it, its reaction, which is just why so many eminent people like George Keenan and Robert McNamara and many others mm-hmm. uh, inside the U.S. establishment have warned about this prospect for, for a long time. Yeah, OK, I agree. And uh, finally, I was just going to say that if you look at um, Biden's foreign policy, um, I mean, I think you wrote about how he basically used Ukraine as a family piggy bank. And now he's brought catastrophe on the country by seeking to make it a proxy on Russia's border. And if you combine that with, you know, his policy on Afghanistan, you know, where people are being starved to death, basically because Biden's embarrassed about, you know, the chaotic pullout of U.S. troops. I mean, this is like the foreign policy of a psychopath, isn't it? It's certainly a very dangerous foreign policy. And Biden has played such a key role. He was the most influential U.S. politician in Ukraine after the coup. And that's why his son, Hunter, got a job there. And um, he, uh, his people, Victoria Nuland, Jake Sullivan, Blinken, all of them played a very critical role in the events of 2014. All of them, by the way, wanted to arm Ukraine uh, much more than Obama did. And Obama was actually virtually alone inside his White House in basically refusing to further inflame the proxy war that he helped start with the coup. But now Obama's gone and Biden's in charge and we're, we're seeing the result. Yeah. So, Jeff, thank you. Thank you for calling. I want to get to the rest of the caller. So thanks a lot. OK, thanks a lot. Thank you. Hi there. So, E.N.D., you have to unmute yourself by hitting the microphone in the bottom right if you're there. And if you're not there, we'll, we'll, we'll move on to the next caller, which is Greg. Hi, Greg. Hi, sorry. There, I think there was another Greg in front of me. I got confused. Um, hi, Aaron. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to ask, um, You, I'm seeing uh, a lot of, I mean, if you look at recent polling, for instance, a lot of Americans support uh, a zone for Ukraine. I just want to ask, where, where do you see, I mean, and I, perhaps this is already asked, and um, based on your art, like already like knowledge of history, like where do you see the extent of U.S. involvement going? Like, is this like a Yugoslavia type situation, or am I going to have to worry about getting drafted? <laughs> uh, I don't think a no-fly zone is a serious prospect. It because it means World War Three. It means World War Three, and I have to hope that the Biden administration isn't reckless enough to, to risk that. But again, you know, I was wrong. I was wrong. I didn't think Putin would invade and he did. So what do I know? And yeah, I know, I know there's like threats of nukes and stuff too, but I mean, do you, do you see like is in a post world war two situation? Like, is it realistic that we actually like go to war with, with another giant imperial nation such as Russia, Russia or well, it depends who's in charge. There are people in the U.S. government right now and outsiders like uh, who were just recently in the U.S. government, like Kurt Volker, who's the former U.S. envoy to Ukraine. He advocates a no-fly zone, even though it risks war with Russia. So who knows? In the next election, I mean, assuming Biden stays out of the possibility of a World War III and doesn't go along with a no-fly zone, who knows? It's possible someone... I've never never seen such like cheering on for like beating their chest for war and like since Iraq, probably. Yeah. So it's like pretty concerning. It's scary. um, 
Yeah, no, I, I appreciate your work, Aaron. You're probably like one of the only like three prominent journalists in the West. Uh, so, you know, you, Green, Glenn Greenwald, all of them, I appreciate all your work. Well, thanks. I really appreciate that, Greg. Thanks for calling. All right. To try to uh, get a little bit of gender parity, I'm going to move up uh, female callers because we haven't had too many. So, Lorenza, I see you, and I'm going to make you the next caller if you are there. So, Lorenza, if you're there, to come in, you have to unmute yourself by hitting the microphone button in the bottom right. Unmuted already? Yes. Hi. Hi. I'm calling from Honduras, and I listen. I just signed up to your call-in app, and um, I'm wondering, uh, today in the in the Fox channel was um, Poroshenko talking about the genocide happening in Ukraine. And then um, I figured that's uh, a friend of Bill Browder and, and the, uh, nobody's talking about the oligarchs that were in place in the 1990s and were displaced by Putin afterwards. And I was wondering if you have uh, if something to say about that. Thank you. Well, just that it's, you know, I don't have, I'm not that informed on this topic and um, feel free to weigh in with any, with anything you want to share on it. But basically I, um, it's ironic for all the talk about going after Russian oligarchs. We forget that the U S created that system under Yeltsin with the shock therapy yes. and created a, a massive class of oligarchs. And Putin basically came in and he, as I understand the story and maybe, you know, better than me, but he basically cracked down a little bit on the existing oligarchs and created a new system of his own, a new mm -hmm. class of oligarchs that were more under his control. But he did, he did make the system a little bit more, a little bit less insane than Yeltsin did when it was just, you know, outright pillage of everything, massive enrichment for a small group of people, and then mass impoverishment for the rest of society. Things For the rest of society, things have improved under Putin, although certainly there still is this insane class of, of oligarchs there. But certainly, as I understand it, it's gotten less awful than it was under the U.S. client, which was, Putin, <laughs> which was Yeltsin. Yeah, that's what I, I, I believe that as well. It's the same system of oligarchs, but I, I was wondering if the old ones are trying to get back and they're friends with the Clintons and, and yeah. uh, if, if that's going on there. Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, Bill Browder is someone who got filthy rich off of pillaging Russia in the 90s. Mm -hmm. He was very tight with all of these uh, pro-Yeltsin oligarchs. And then Putin came in and Bill Browder, who's not Russian, he's... He's American or he's, yeah. Uh, and by the way, he gave up his U.S. citizenship so he could avoid paying taxes, which shows what a patriot he is. <laughs> he then became one of Putin's biggest critics and the whole thing with his accountant, Magnitsky, a lot of which was embellished. I mean, Magnitsky was certainly treated very horribly in prison, but Browder has told, has made false claims about what happened to him. And there's even a video deposition where Browder basically has to admit that he was lying. Um, he, but of course, Browder's now a hero in Western media who's, uh, you know, just seen as this I noble know. crusader. So, yeah, um, that is one part of yeah, the well, thank story. You. That's it. Well, thanks for calling. Okay. And next up in the queue is Raid. Yes. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Aaron. Uh, thanks for letting me uh, speak. Uh, I want to thank you for your great work, really. Honestly, I'm calling from Belgrade, actually, from, from ex-Yugoslavia, uh, person before uh, uh, Lorenza mentioned it, yeah, so I was 
pretty much an adult person when when you know the bombing happened here so it's kind of interesting to you know to compare the two the two events anyway, just one comment on the on the uh, on the last topic you discussed with Lorenza there's a great documentary movie um Magnitsky act behind the scenes I don't know if you know that that I yes I that movie was very eye opening for me it's, it, it was an eye opener for me, honestly. It's a recommendation, like for anyone who's listening to this, you know, like I think it's on, available online despite a lot of obstacles they put, you know, to, to try to, you know, let people see it. It's, it's a great movie. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, I just wanted to, to ask you something like, um, so I was like in my late twenties. Uh, By the way, when, let, let me just explain quickly because it relates yeah. to the last caller. The, the filmmaker of, of Magnitsky behind the scenes initially yeah. thought that Bill Browder, the guy, the hedge fund guy we talked about was a hero. And he was going to make a film about him. And then he discovers in the process of making a film about him that this guy is a corrupt fraud who's trying to bleed Russia and bring about regime change because he's angry about Putin going after his obscene wealth and the obscene wealth of his friends. So it's a really interesting story. And it's online. People can watch it online. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, uh, so my question is like, so I was, I was like in my late twenties, you know, when when we were bombed here, and then uh, I really hated very much our our how can I say soft dictator at that at that time, Milosevic or Milosevic, how they called him uh, back then. And then I, uh, uh, how can I tell you? I heard from the older guys who were mostly, let's say, for him. They said, "Oh, uh, you don't know nothing. You're young. You know, this is just a rehearsal for Russia." You know, and I was really. I, Honestly, I thought they were a bunch of morons, you know, uneducated, you know, uh, uh, people who don't know anything, you know. So, uh, and, and as the time uh, went, you know, as the time passed, you know, uh, especially with those, uh, let's say, tangential uh, uh, parallels, like even, what's the name of that guy? James Le Mesurier, Mesurier, you know, from, that was also... James Le Mesurier, who is the, yeah, one yeah. of the founders of the White Helmets, the yeah, group yeah. in Syria. Yeah. yeah, he's been working here uh, uh, quite a lot, you know, doing something similar, you know, this thing he did for KLA here. You know, like he did the same thing for White Helmets there, yeah. you know, practically rebranded them, huh? you know. Uh, so Wait, let me just explain what? for people who don't know who yeah, he is. Sorry. So he's a British military veteran who has a shady past. He was working um, for the British government, uh, backing the KLA rebels, the uh, Kosovo Liberation Army. And then he goes on to Syria and makes a lot of money. Um, being the head of the White Helmets, which is branded to the a Western audience as this humanitarian group saving lives, when really they're working adjacently with Al-Qaeda and other sectarian death squads and have a lot of members who, who actually are, were in these death squads. And they're putting out propaganda to the world that is essentially trying to manufacture support for things like a no-fly zone and to increase Western intervention inside Syria. And then he passed away a few years ago when he fell off the roof, the roof of his building under mysterious circumstances and what is said to be a suicide, but there's, there's, there's questions about that, but yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. And, and, and what happened is, uh, uh, it's similar to, to, to situation there before, let's say his rebranding, huh? the KLA was listed like a terrorist organization by, by the, I don't know, whoever in the U S you know, and after that, uh, you know, they disappeared from that list, got, you know, supported and everything. And so just the question was like, did you think about it? Or maybe it's just a hint for my, you know, for me, let's say, uh, uh, to, to give it a thought about this, you know, historic perspective and, did those those old guys, you know, was it crap or or did maybe they have some point there? I don't know. 
<laughs> so thank you for your work, really, honestly. Thanks, but I'm sorry, I don't follow the question. So, so, so the thing is, they, uh, they, they were telling, they were saying something like, uh, you, you, you are too young, you don't know nothing, this is just a rehearsal for Russia, you know. This is what the U.S. is practically doing without the, the approval from the U.N., you know, it's going to happen yeah. like in some time with Russia. Yes. Okay, so, so, so was, was Yugoslavia a rehearsal for Russia? Exactly. That's my point. Sorry if I'm... Okay, yeah, that. well, I, I don't, you know, I can't, I can't speak to that. Certainly what was done in the late 1990s was, um, was criminal, and it actually... You know, it was done under the guise of humanitarian intervention, but it actually ended up eliciting far more killings of people in Kosovo than was even happening before the war. Noam Chomsky has documented this extensively. Mm-hmm. And, and it, um, yeah. And certainly it had a major impact on Russia and in their views of NATO and it not being a defensive military alliance, but an offensive military alliance. That... Yeah, one, one, one question, just a personal one. Do you know, do you know the, the Rachak massacre, how it all started in, over here? Did you, did you investigate that maybe, no? No, I have not, no. If you have some time, just do, it, just do a quick search or something. You know, There was an interesting character, a guy who's really at the end of his career, but learned a lot of lessons in El Salvador, I think, before. Yeah. He was uh, here pretty prominent as uh, the OSCE observer, mm-hmm. marks, you know, and then you know, take a look into it if you have, if you have some time, <laughs> which you don't, sorry. Okay. It's really yeah. interesting. Someday. Really? Someday. Uh, yeah, thank, someday. You. Yeah. thank you. Yeah. Thank and you. And send me a message. If you have any tips on that, send me a message and I can, oh, well, I, well. I can look it up. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, but I'll try to send you a message now here that the audio went, uh, the quality, you know, but uh, um, uh, calling call uh, this application started crashing. I don't know. I'll try. I'll, I'll send you on Twitter. Maybe okay. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, All right, Sam, you're up, and then we're gonna have to wrap pretty soon. And Sam, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right. Okay. If Sam is not there, we'll move on to the next caller, which is Jay Moore, Boston. Hello. Oh, Sam, sorry, I skipped you right when you spoke. So if you come back in the queue, I'll let you back in. Jay Moore, Boston, if you're there, you're on. Hey, Aaron. Pleasure to talk to you. <clears throat> I, can you hear me? Yeah. Hi. Okay, great. I had two quick points that I wanted to hit on, the influx of weapons and then sanctions. Uh-huh. Um, what you brought up uh, at the beginning of the show of, you know, you think it's a bad idea for America to, can you know, just blast Ukraine with weapons. And now Blinken has okayed uh, fighter jets from Poland. Um, that just happened today. But I think this is intentional. Um, I think that they want uh, uh, somebody had made a comment that America is willing to fight Russia to the very last Ukrainian. Um, So I think they want this conflict to drag on also with the complete control of the narrative in America and the UA. uh, This is just they can just all the violence, they can just continue to demonize. Um, and, and people are just uh, frothing at the mouth, at least in America, at what's happening. So I think it's intentional as far it's not a mistake. I think it's intentional. Um, and then with the sanctions, um, I think that ultimately, unfortunately, uh, it's going to be hell on the Ru- uh, Russian population but ultimately it's going to unify Russia and China, which will hurt 
the United States economically, which will obviously hurt the poorest in the United States. But Washington, D.C. doesn't care about that. Um, And so and the other thing about the sanctions is at least what I can tell in America is the level of sadism, the the level of pleasure that you're listening to the elite in the media and then uh, on social media that some uh, some Americans are getting from doing this to the Russian population is just sickening to me. So it, if you wanted to... Well, no, look, I, on the point about sadism, I totally agree. There's a book called The Art of Sanctions. Yes. Written, written by a guy named Richard Nephew, who was a yeah. uh, official under Obama and helped design the sanctions uh, that were imposed on Iran. And he talks about, with no remorse and actually with pride, mm-hmm but how the sanctions he designed and implemented targeted ordinary Iranian civilians, actually bypassed Iranian elites, so he didn't go after luxury goods, because he deliberately wanted to inflict pain on ordinary Iranian civilians because the policy was to make ordinary Iranians suffer enough to basically turn against their government. That was the plan, And 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 he's proud of it. And then he was appointed to the Biden administration's negotiating team for reviving the Iran nuclear deal. And one of the only positives I can say have, have, uh, has come out of the Biden administration so far was that Richard Nephew recently quit over what he called differences, differences of opinion, which I thought was mm-hmm. wonderful news, which means that the sadist, or at least the worst of the sadists, was, was, was losing out on the, uh, on the argument. So, and yeah, <laughs> look, the, the sadism is a complete feature of U.S. elite culture, and it's worth, I mean, you know, one day when I have the time, I'd love to analyze it more, what it means psychologically, because under, under what circumstances does a human being cheer the immiseration, the immiseration of ordinary people in foreign countries that they're not even, um, that don't well, even, you know. Six, six years of Russiagate helped it did, you know, but, 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 but what is going on psychologically, I wonder? And to me, part of the answer is when you see yourself as superior and you're profiting off of a system that privileges, you know, U.S. elites, you have to look at foreign civilians who are the target of your policies as inferior and as worthy of suffering. That's the only way I can explain it, because under what circumstances would someone cheer denying ordinary Iranians? Well, the psychology... Know, of it is you dehumanize yes right and then i was born in 70 so since i've been alive hollywood is russia has always been the bad guy right right and and then again with the six years plus of russiagate yeah so i mean it's been it's been ingrained at least from my generation and Mm -hmm. my well my mother was born in 45 she hates Russia more than <laughs> she never hated them before, but she hates them now. Right. So yeah, yeah, it's it just uh, a steady stream of just nonstop con- being condescending to the culture and to, to everything is less thaning the culture. Absolutely. Where, like you were saying, the uh, superiority complex or. Yes, and, 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 and listen, on the topic of Russiagate, the propaganda system here is so powerful that they were, yeah. were able to turn a whole generation of you know, younger Democrats into Russophobes over what? An allegation right. that Russia stole some emails and put out some dumb social media memes on right. Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And so I mean, that was that the gets, charts. Yeah. That gets to my, back to my point with the influx of weapons. 
the more horrific they can make the war. Yeah. Right. And then, and, and then broadcast it across America and EU. It, it's just going to, I don't know if gaslight, but, you know, just stir um, the, the passions of anger and hatred in the West towards them. Absolutely. So that no matter what we do, we we are automatically going to be justified. Absolutely. So manufacturing consent. Absolutely. That's what it is. Okay. Thank you for the call. And Sam, I'm going to bring you back in now because you were kicked out before. So Sam, you're up. And Sam, if you're there, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. This is it's weird. I have an Android, and uh, you have to like, close the app, reopening the app because the microphone button just doesn't work. Oh no. Okay. Well, I will tell the calling people that, and they'll get yeah. on. Well, first off, let me just say it's a real great pleasure to finally talk to you. I've been watching you since like 2014 over at the Real News because I was like the only person who I felt like I was shouting about. Like I was like, I don't think these rebels in Syria are all that friendly. Like a lot of things seem off. So I was really thankful that somebody else was like actually doing the hard journalism that pointing these things out. So first, thank you as somebody who has family in Syria. Thank you so much for the work. Well, listen, thanks, thanks, but I I can't accept the compliment because I was way too late to the truth about Syria and other people came before me who were who were on it. And uh, I was I was late, but I still appreciate the sentiment. I just can't take any. Uh, I just can't accept it. But anyway, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you did follow through, but like you had Hirsch, who I had broken the story in 2013, like trying to get, yes, you know, people to listen. And it, like you pointed out, he had to end up in the UK, and you know, it's like yeah. this is a guy who didn't he break like uh, Abu Ghraib? As uh, and I'm like, this is a guy who's broken countless stories, and yet he's pushed to a corner. I'm baffled he, by all he that. Broke the, he broke the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. He broke Abu Ghraib. He broke stories about COINTELPRO. He broke stories about Kissinger. He uh, has broken so many important stories. He, he broke uh, the story about bin Laden and how bin Laden was actually, was actually killed. Yeah, that's the, uh, if I remember the Pakistanis had kept him for close yes. to three years yes. on behalf of Saudis. And yet, so, yeah. yeah. So he's and a yet legend. no one listened to him. He's a legend, but when he started talking about Syria and reported the truth about Syria, he he wasn't welcome anymore. And he was, I, uh, and and it, that's that right there is a testament to the power of the propaganda around the Syria dirty wars. The fact that one of the most celebrated, decorated, accomplished journalists of his generation was shunned. And so, if he's shunned, then imagine what it's like for those of us on places like you know, the the Real News and the Gray Zone and. Well, I was just kind of, uh, I don't want to get on sidetrack there, but like he was actually interviewed by the Young Turks and then they made a full like, you know, 180 degree in that. I'm like, you had this guy and you interviewed him back in 2013, 2014, and yet you've like completely, you know, ignored everything he said about this. Well, you unfortunately unfortunately can apply that to many other places, including where I used to work, Democracy Now!, which – yeah has also done a complete anyway but yeah well yeah uh, i was going to call him last week because somebody had asked you if you had seen that uh, Mehdi hassan thing on msnbc about the far right uh if you haven't don't torture yourself i i made the mistake of actually trying to listen through it before i got halfway nauseous but if footnotes where he glosses over saying they're just a tiny little fraction they they're not really part of the army and then he pivots to well russia has neo-nazis and and they send them to like syria and so and so so you know it's like okay so you're just not going through any facts you're just kind of glossing through a lot of things but, so, listen, let me just say on that there was recently a report that nobody paid attention to and I, i'm gonna have to write about it now if i didn't know many did that but 
this is oh, a good well, opportunity. I mean, if you but, but, just don't eat me, food and watch it. Got it. But basically, there was a report released, quietly released by the U.S. intelligence community about Russia's ties to the far right. And it basically concludes that Russia kind of tolerates some right-wing movements inside its borders, but overall it has no formal ties to the global far right and has actually been trying to counter the far right um, inside its country and elsewhere too. And of course, because that's inconvenient to the, the message, it got completely ignored. While meanwhile, we're sending weapons to and training and supporting Ukrainian military that has literally has a neo-Nazi battalion in its armed forces. Well, two things to that point. He had pointed. He said, "Oh, you might have seen this picture on online or something." He's referring to the NBC uh, clip of the guy training grandma. And I'm like, that was. I, I don't know what MSNBC's relationship is with NBC, but I was like, that's pretty sure that's like a subsidiary thing. But okay. And then his he, he pointed out it was so sketchy on the score, source, but he said that the uh, Russians were using some neo-Nazi groups in Syria, like as, as mercs or something. And I was like, that's, you're, you're kind of grasping at straws with just one image of one guy somewhere in Syria, but okay, fine. I, yeah. He's talking about, he's talking about a member of the Wagner group and even there, yeah. look, I haven't looked into that, so I shouldn't comment, but I just, I'm skeptical yeah. of, especially when the claim is about Syria, but what's, yeah. what's so funny that he's trying to whitewash his own network literally featuring a uh, propaganda stunt put on by the Azov Battalion, which is me. Yep. And Richard, I mean, I, I, mean I, I, I called this out and I, I did a segment on it um, at Youthful Idiots, my, the, where I'm, um, which I co-host with Katie Helper. And we talked about mm-hmm. it. And yeah, and you see members of the Azov Battalion wearing their Azov insignia, uh, yep. which, comes, which, which has origins in Nazi Germany, training yep. people. And Richard Engel is promoting that. And so I'm going to have to make fun of this segment that Medi did because it sounds yeah. hilarious. Again, just don't eat food when you watch it the first time because I got nauseous afterwards. But um, just to get through two quick points, and I have just two quick questions. But uh, what's your view on this? Like, uh, it's not one question, but did you see this? I forget what her position is in the UK, Secretary like Foreign Affairs, something. She said she would be fine if Westerners decided to fly over to Ukraine. And I just thought to myself, I was like, didn't you have a lot of bad problems when people from your country went to Libya and came back? I mean, you don't see any problems of the UK. She she openly said in an interview, she doesn't care if uh, she encourages people from the West to uh, from even her her country to fly over to Ukraine and fight. I hadn't seen that, but I'm not surprised. There's a book yeah, by I, there's a book by Noam Chom- there's a book by Noam Chomsky called Hegemony or Survival, and this is a case where again people in power prioritize hegemony over survival, over security of their own countries. And that's also a big theme of, of Max Blumenthal's book, The Management of Savagery, where U.S. policies, Western policies in Libya and Syria mm-hmm. created not just you know massive destruction for those countries, but created huge security risks at home as well. Yeah, I mean, that, I was just, I forget what her title is, but I think she's something with the home office. You, I'm sure you can find it. But uh, yeah. to continue that point, everyone, like you showed that clip about Hillary wanting to create insurgencies in uh, Ukraine. And she talks about how, oh, it had a little blowback and so on. But a lot of people cut out the clip where she continued on talking about the Russians' involvement in Syria. And I was like, you're just kind of babbling because she said, oh, it took them, you know, I was like, did you view that as a loss? Because that was more of a win. And she kind of realized she was babbling because she was like, oh, and they're fighting the democratic forces and so and so. I was like, oh, OK, I think you've realized that that wasn't going to help your argument. But well, to she that said, uh, she point said about being... democratic forces and others. And by others, and others, yeah, by others, she meant the same people that the U.S. supported in, Syria, in Afghanistan, which is which is Al Qaeda. 
but she can't. Well, I think it was, yeah, but she was trying to say that was like a loss. I'm like that that was a win for them. That wasn't a loss for them. And to my knowledge, they don't fight the uh, YPG or SDF, whatever they're going by. So I'm like, you've kind of tapered off there. But that brings me to to this question here, which is. Uh, there was a few reports, and I, you know, the sources were kind of sketchy. But then I saw something. I think, and forgive me if I don't say it right, like L.A. Lad Bible or something. It was uh, the title was "Syrian Rebels Who Destroyed a Hundred Tanks Wants to Go Fight in Ukraine," and I'm like, you know, those guys are in Idlib, which is run by HTS. You come, you know, they didn't. You could look it up, but that was the title: "Rebels Who Destroyed a Hundred Russian Tanks Want to Fight in Ukraine," and I'm. I'm kind of torn. On one hand, I'm like, hey, listen, if it gets you guys out of Syria, I'm I'm more than happy. But then it's just placing the problem somewhere else. Yeah. Well, you know? and, and HCS, just to explain for people, HCS means Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which, is, which rules over the province of Idlib. And that's just al-Qaeda under a new name because they had to rebrand to make themselves look palatable. But yeah, look, this is what happens in these wars. It happened in Syria. It happened in Libya. And if there is an insurgency against the Russians in Ukraine, I would not be surprised at all if if people like that make their way over there. So my last quick question was this is the, the question I have. It, let's say just Russia succeeds. They topple this government. The guys flees or says whatever it is. And then their next thing is like, OK, we're going to put in the, you know, a new government or vote or whatever. Wouldn't wouldn't they just the U.S. just wait till Russia pulls the troops out and then have the people who come back uh, who are refugees just overthrow that government and then we're back to square one again? I can't uh, speculate like that, but certainly this is going to be going on for a long time. This is this opens up a just a whole new level of conflict, and Ukraine is going to be, I think, in deep conflict for a long time. I, th- I think that's a pretty safe bet. But again, I anything is possible, you know. Well, uh, thanks, Aaron. I don't want to take up any more time. I'll ask questions next week, but thank you so much. Uh, appreciate the work, and it's a pleasure finally talking to you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Sam. Tom, you are up. Uh, thanks, Aaron. Um, really appreciate your work. I'm calling from Australia. Um, look, the the comments that you made about the psychological and social aspects of what's going on right now in our culture, like the kind of sickening um, behavior that we're seeing, the jingoism, um, I really do agree and would love to see that being explored by yourself. And look, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of your father's work who I actually follow really closely and he, he talks about the, you know, the so-called archetypal trauma that societies and, and large groups are subjected to and how this does become multi-generational. Look, I have two quick questions. Um, firstly, um, I think people are struggling, including myself, to get their head around this idea that these fascist groups are being funded and, and trained and armed by the U.S. and like places like the National Endowment for Democracy. And I actually believe that it was the gray zone where I was reading about the fact that the military contractors that are training these battalions um, are from places like Israel um, and have been going in and training these fascist neo-Nazi groups. I was actually just wondering if you yourself see any parallels between the ideologies or movements of Zionism and Nazism, this idea of a state, design and set up for one type of people over another based on you know their religion or their ethnicity um and why you think that if you do um why these two seemingly opposing kind of groups seem to share enough commonality that they would be employed and go to places like ukraine yeah there's a and there's been work done on this by people scholars like joseph massad who's at columbia why israel would take part is because israel is a chauvinist settler state and it's not it's based around an identity, but it's 
its primary aim is, um, you know, settler colonialism. And so anything that can achieve that agenda, even if it means supporting neo-Nazis elsewhere, it will do, you know. Um, that's why Israel has been used to, to do the U.S.'s dirty work when the U.S. can't do it, like in the in Central America in the 1980s to get around congressional prohibitions on U, direct U.S. support. The U.S. just used Israel to arm and train death squads in Central America. So, and that's why they've been doing that in Ukraine too, I think, especially after the U.S. passed restrictions, the U.S. Congress passed restrictions on, on helping out the Azov Battalion. Israel was a way to get around that. So um, in terms of the parallels between Zionism and Nazism, I mean, it depends what kind of Zionism you're talking about. There are Zionists, there are Zionists who totally abhor Nazism. Of so, course. And, yeah, and, and there's different you know, strands of Zionism. So it's, you know, it's, it's hard to make a blanket statement, but certainly there are elements of Zionism that have sure. uh, tacitly, you can say, cooperated with Nazism. And um, that's, you see that today with, with Israel. And that's why, uh, you know, in, in Israel, in Israel a few years ago, there was Israeli groups asking the government to stop funding neo-Nazis. There was a, there was a letter written, a coalition of groups, because it was getting so ridiculous, but the Israeli government, to my knowledge, didn't stop doing it. Right. Right. And look, a um, very short one with the, I guess the power and the volume of, you know, traditional media um, being so emotional um, coupled with all the self, you know, sort of censorship that we're seeing now, what's your view on what we can all do to kind of be antithetical and, and saturate, you know, with a, a rational anti-war, you know, just a different point of view. I kind of feel like a lot of people feel very powerless to, to speak up and like, you can't even create a, an anti-war movement, you know, anymore. It, I wonder if you have a take on that. I don't, I don't consuming this information, how they can share it themselves. I I don't have any uh, prescriptions. I just don't, I don't, I I, I feel as hopeless in that sense as you do. You know, I just feel like when something is going to happen, it will happen. I believe in things happening organically and all we can do individually is just do our best and try to make alliances with people we agree with and, meet together in groups and find media outlets that we like and form communities that way. And things will just happen as they happen, you know, but I'm not a, I'm not an sure. anti-war leader, you know, I'm not an activist. So it's, it's not my place to, to offer a, a roadmap that way. Unfortunately, if I knew the answer, I would, I would share it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for all your work, Aaron. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Again, to encourage gender parity, I'm going to let people skip ahead. So, Hulkaroy, you are up. So Hulkaroy, if you are there, you have to hit the mute button at the bottom right, if you're there. And if you're not there, I will take another caller. Janice, you are up. And Janice, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right to unmute yourself. Hi. Um, I don't think I knew I was calling in. My husband, Vladimir, talked to you earlier, so I'm really glad you got to talk to him. So I think I'm not going to say anything and let the next caller go. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank you. Uh-huh. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Well, so much for gender parity. Billy, you're up. And Billy, if you're there, it's a microphone button in the bottom right. And if you're not there, I will take the next caller, which is going to be Cade. And Cade, you will be the last caller. Cade, are you there? All right. Steven, 
you are up. Oh, hey. Um, so big fan, Aaron, first of all. Um, I think anyone who's um, kind of paying even a little bit of attention uh, knows that Ukraine, sorry, Ukraine and Russia both kind of lose in this conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess I was kind of curious your sense of who is winning. I know that, we, uh, you know, there's a little bit of uh, financial gain for like weapons contractors and stuff like that. But um, I, I can really only think of like two avenues. Obviously, U.S. is goading a little bit uh, with, you know, NATO membership and a couple of other things as well. Um, but like the U.S. public obviously doesn't benefit. So like <laughs> who does? And then in the case of political instability in Russia and the new alliance with China, like are there any winners in this situation? Yeah, so far that I can see the clear winner is the U.S. establishment, at least the Cold Warriors who've been wanting to isolate Russia even more from the world, you know, hurt its finances, hurt its economy. They've won. Putin's invasion gave them the pretext to do what they've been planning to do for a long time. So that to me right now is the only clear winner. Can Russia weather this and can China prop them up and help them out and together can they create a powerful alliance to end the unipolar world we'll see you know i don't know yeah my sense looking at this is is obviously it's a a loss for the people of ukraine and russia i I just don't see this being de-escalated in a in a healthy way um yeah yeah and and really i don't know that many people in the u.s really benefit either kind of implicit in the assumption there is um you know that the worst case doesn't happen and everyone loses uh with, you know, either a Chernobyl-style situation or, or all-out, you know, nuclear war. Um, yeah. And, and certainly we've kind of set the stage for that possibility. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It, it just, the decision-making doesn't seem to make sense if we're all in. Of course, but according to the people who run the world, we're not in this together. They're in their own camp, and we're... We're the plebes. We're left out. And that's why we all continue to suffer from their policies. And, of course, the people on the front lines in Ukraine are bearing the worst of it. It's awful. It's awful. And um, on that very bleak note, we're going to have to wrap up this edition of AM Live. I'm sorry to end it that way, but that's just how it is right now. So thank you to everybody for tuning in. I really appreciate you coming by and your support. And I'll be back uh, actually tomorrow, tomorrow morning after we do the Useful Idiots Monday morning live show with Katie Halper, which is at 10 a.m. Eastern time on YouTube right after that. So around 11 a.m. we'll be here on Colin to take your calls then. So thanks for tuning in and have a great rest of your day.